Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about healthcare professionals, the stories of their practice, and the diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and on today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Arjun Agarwal. Dr. Agarwal is a second-year internal medicine resident in Austin, Texas, and he aspires to become a cardiologist. I actually talked to him the day that Texas lifted the mask mandate, and he clearly was not a big fan of the decision. We also talk about his time as an internal medicine resident, his interest in cardiology, and his thoughts on social media as free open access medical education. He also discusses the concept of risk and benefit when it comes to treatment, and how physicians need to be able to make difficult decisions. For example, while a medication might present some degree of risk, it could also present a large degree of benefit. So how do you decide whether or not to administer it? Dr. Agarwal illustrates this point through a case of a heart attack during the Texas snowstorm in February. This was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for being here, Dr. Agarwal. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So really interesting news today, and you've probably um, seen it everywhere, you know, coming back from the hospital today. The mask mandate in Texas, it's, it's, it's gone with, they're done with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I saw that just a few hours ago while, you know, at work and so I haven't really read the news about it, but um, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I don't, personally, I don't think it's right and I think it's too early, but, um, you know, there's powers higher up there that I don't have control over, so. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, because like a lot of the businesses and um, like you mentioned before, the schools too, like are, they're just like not regarding that. They're like, regardless of that, we are still, you know, exactly. wearing masks. Exactly. And I, I hope that still continues. I mean, um, I would still 100% recommend wearing a mask to everyone and for businesses and, um, you know, any, any buildings or institutions out there to keep mask mandates still a thing on their, on their property. Um and you know, there's going to be pushback, and that's, I guess, inevitable, but um, people just need to understand that it's, they're still at risk. Right. And um, I, I feel like it's a bad example, too, for other states. And so other states might move based off of the decisions of, like, of, of Texas and move too early. And, and that's, I think, kind of the bigger, big scale kind of scary aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Um, and, you know, I, I can't speak to what other states are going to do, obviously, but, um, you know, I hope and pray that they keep the mask mandates going for, for a little bit longer. Um, Johnson Johnson vaccine is um, approved and, you know, that's going to be distributed soon. They're working on that partnership with Merck to produce that vaccine. So hopefully that will help with increasing the vaccine numbers as well. Um, so, I, you know, I'm guessing that that will start coming into distribution pretty soon. Right. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> now we're kind of like racing against the finish line and racing against also like people not being patient, you know, people open it up too early. And so these vaccines just have like extra work to do now, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, you, um, you earlier during the, the pandemic and when the original vaccines, um, the Moderna and the Pfizer came out, uh, you were very active on social media about those and made some really um, simplified posts on how the vaccines work and, and really diagrammed very simply, you know, so anyone like without necessarily medical background could understand it. What was your, I guess, inspiration for putting that information out there? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, kind of in my day-to-day life, just from friends and family, I was getting questions about COVID, about the vaccine. And, you know, I personally, at that point, I didn't really have a, a full and clear understanding of the mechanisms and of the vaccine mechanism, things like that. So, I, you know, I took the time to learn about it myself and do my own research about um, the vaccine trials and, um, you know, thought that if my close friends and family who are in the medical field and things like that have these questions, then I'm sure people who are not in the medical field will also have these questions right. and uh, benefit from having simple and easy to understand explanations. Um, so that was sort of the inspiration. And, and I mean, I'm glad that it got um, you know, such a, uh, a big audience. It, it shared a lot. So, you know, I'm happy people saw it and, and shared it themselves um, for other people to see, which, you know, I think ultimately just awareness and knowing how the vaccine works is just so helpful, you know, you know for especially because it's the new technology, first time being implemented in a vaccine. Um, but really, it's pretty simple. Yeah. And, and speaking about that technology, right, this this mRNA, I was looking um, or I was I was on Instagram the other day and I saw someone post something about it, um, how someone used that technology, like the, the mRNA, um, tr- like transfer technology to create a vaccine for malaria. And the the fact that you're able to do that with with a disease like malaria is kind of really game changing, kind of in your field in in internal medicine, where you really have to like dig into these medical conditions. Where do you see like this concept of of mRNA um, and the vaccine tech behind it? Like, where do you see that have a lot of power in your field? Yeah. So, you know, mRNA tech technology has been in research for decades now, and they've actually developed vaccines for several viruses and several you know pathogens, um, including malaria, CMV, um, cytomegalovirus, and Zika virus too. And they've done testing in animals with these vaccines, just haven't done human trials with those yet. Um, so it's been around for a while. Um, the I think the thing that makes it so easy to use is essentially that the, the vaccine structure is very simple. There's not a lot of preservatives or additives or anything like that in the, in the actual vaccine solution. It's just salt, sugar, and fat for the capsule and then the mm-hmm. mRNA it's like four. super simple yeah very easy to make and that mRNA strand itself can be switched out really easily if you have the genome for any other pathogen or or the genome for whatever else you want to target mm-hmm. so um, I think that makes it super easy to apply it to new viruses new pathogens um, and even you know new strains of COVID the new variants that are coming out you know even if, even if the vaccine is not effective against some of the newer variants in the future, it'll be easy to switch out the mRNA to make a new vi- new vaccine against those. Um, and it's it's not limited to just one virus. You can put in multiple different mRNAs into a vaccine and um, you can have a vaccine that's against several viruses altogether. You know, eventually it'd be great if there could be a one vaccine fits all for every single vaccine that we give now, you just combine it all into one vaccine through MRNA technology. That'd be great. You right. know? Yeah. It just, it'd streamline it a lot and make it cheaper. Exactly. It's super cheap. And it, it, even, even now it's actually cheaper to produce than other vaccine mm-hmm. uh, modalities or technologies that we currently use. So uh, I, you know, overall I think it's very beneficial and beyond vaccines against diseases, um, the same technology can be applied to target like cancer cells, for example, and that's being used targeted immunotherapy and in other fields. 
Um, I'll be honest, I don't know enough about the research and the work that's done in those fields with this technology, but, um, you know, I know that it's, it's being applied there. Right. And talking about like your profession right now, so you, you are an internal medicine resident um, right now. So what is your kind of schedule in the sense where like you, like you, you were talking about earlier, like you're doing cardio um, cases right now, is it kind of you cycle through different um, parts of the hospital or, or how exactly does it work? Yeah, yeah. So we're on a different rotation every mm. like a four plus one schedule is what it's called. So we do like a four weeks of inpatient and then one week of clinic. And so each one of those four weeks, I'm on a different rotation. Um, so right now I'm on cardiology consults. Um, so I'm doing my internal medicine training. I'm about halfway through my second year right now, a little more than halfway through. Um, and I want to do cardiology. So I'm going to be applying for cardiology fellowships soon. And that'll be, um, you know, after my third year, I'll go into fellowship. Um, so being on cardiology consults right now, I'm enjoying it a lot just because this is what I want to do. And, you know, I, I love the, the cases that I see and, and the patients that I see and kind of learning about the pathology and the different um, disease processes in the, in the field. It's great. Um, what is it exactly about cardiology, I think, for, for you that, that is like, that makes it so impactful? Yeah. Um, it, that's a, that's funny. It's because that's kind of a, a question that I'd probably get asked during my interviews. So it's a great, yeah, oh, yeah it's a little practice. Uh, so, you know, cardiology, I think it's, it, it's a very, um, I, I love the physiology involved in it, right? So, you know, when you're talking about the heart and, and the different chambers and all the pressures and the hemodynamics and, you know, fluid shifts and all that, I, I, I that really is something that piques my interest. Um, I kind of was always interested on the, the numbers side of things and kind of logically thinking through um, these problems from a sort of a physics perspective, I guess, and that I you know I find in cardiology. Um, and beyond that, it's it's um, it's very rewarding as well when you have patients that you know come in with a heart attack and you right. put a in and you know they get the blood flow back and their chest pain is gone like right there and on the spot. So. Um, you know, I think that's great. You can use medical therapy, you can use, you do procedures too. So it's very hands-on as well. Um, so I think it's a really good mix of sort of everything. And you also have great continuity with your patients and, you know, these patients will keep seeing you for, you know, your entire time in your practice and you develop these relationships with them and, um, you sort of become part of the community. And, you know, I think that's great. Uh, A great balance of everything and that medicine has to offer, honestly. Right. And, and you bring up like these, these procedures that you do, how do you like, I mean, in general, like not, not just specific to cardiology, but like, how do you keep track of all these things? Like, don't you have to like, keep, I guess, keep reading like published research, keep doing things like that. So, so how do you, I guess, balance having to see patients on the daily for these long hours? And, and then on top of that, stay on top of learning what's the next big thing? How, like, how do you balance that? Yeah, it's, I mean, they always say, you know, medicine's a field of constant learning. Like if you're using the same things in your practice that you learned in medical school, you're practicing outdated medicine is essentially, you know, what the thought process is. It's constantly changing. There's constantly new research, new trial data, new medications coming up and, you know, new techniques to do procedures. So 
Um, you know, it, it's something that you learn on a day-to-day -day basis when you're seeing patients and, you know, you're talking about therapies, you kind of, you, you build these schemas for what this disease process is supposed to look like. And mm -hmm. when you come across something that is challenging or, or you come across research that suggests that this new medication might be beneficial, then you kind of change your schema and, and kind of include this new medication in the regimen that you're going to prescribe to this patient and, um, things like that. And, and it, during training, during my residency and during fellowship, it's a lot of um, kind of learning with the attendings and with the teams and kind of sharing research. And so, you know, I'll be rounding on a patient and the attending will be like, oh, what which trial showed that this medication is beneficial? Like, why are you prescribing this medication? And, you know, think back like, oh, this is the trial that showed that this medication has mortality benefit for this condition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's new research that's or there's a trial underway that's potentially going to show benefit for this medication but we don't know that yet so you gotta keep those in the back of your mind and um you know you can use simple tools like there's this app called qx read that i use and you subscribe to some topics and it just oh, it'll update you yeah it'll update you with like the newest journal articles from this journal and the you know the most popular research articles that are coming out this week. So you kind of keep that on your reading list and you sift through them. If you find a title of an article that piques your interest and you just open it up, read it real quick and right. get the gist of it. You don't have to read the whole thing, but you get the gist of it. And then if you have more interest to read further, you can do a deep dive, do a critical read of it too, you know, that kind of thing. It's kind of a lifelong process. Right. And, and through that process, right, you said you're like two and a half years ish about into residency. What is something about medicine that you've learned in that time? Like something, some kind of like, I guess, innovation or some like particular kind of uh, um, procedure or something that you learned about that, you know, you had like no clue about something like that. Um, well, I think like one of the things that has been new since I've been in med school is, um, you know, Entresto and uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. So there's a new medication that's a SGLT2 inhibitors. It's a medication that's typically used for diabetes. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's new research that show that it's beneficial in heart failure. It actually has mortality benefit in patients with heart failure. And there's new research even that shows that it's beneficial in patients with heart failure who don't have diabetes. So okay. it's really from being a diabetes drug to a heart failure drug. And you know, that's something that's kind of very revolutionary, very innovative. And you know, I think it's it's changed sort of the, the practice of treating patients with heart failure. Um, and these are some things that really haven't changed in the last few decades. And Tresto was one of the biggest new drugs to, to be added to this heart failure treatment regimen. And um, now SGLT2 inhibitors are on that list too. So um, there's a lot of movement going on. And, and similarly, there's movement on you know, uh, other disease processes as well. And, and in procedures, for example, there's um, changes in the way um, you know, stenting is done. There's trials that, have, that show you know, that right now there's like a whole shift towards doing a radial approach for going in with a catheter to put in a stent and that's you know less complications and you know faster recovery time and overall better for the patient rather than doing a femoral approach so there's changes in techniques happening there and some old school cardiologists who are used to the femoral approach might still do that and right. cardiologists are learning how to do the radial approach so 
um, there's you know always change. Right. And how long does it usually take for something like that to change? Like I remember um, I volunteered with EMS, and like a couple like a year ish ago, there was um the drug ketamine that we were trying to get on the truck um, because it was like I, I think they were saying it was it was a much more um, useful for like for pain and it didn't really have that many side effects but at the same time it wasn't used much and so there's a little bit of like hesitancy to adopt it and i think it took like a year in order for it to actually like you know be stocked up on um in in the in the department so how long does it usually take for you know whether it be procedure or like medication you're talking about to um be offered to a patient um, I think that's very dependent on the, the doctor who's prescribing that medication. I mean, it, the, the trials can go on for, you know, years and years and even decades, so much so that the procedure or the medication that they're using in the trial, by the time the trial is over and the data is published, that mm-hmm. or that medication might already have been outdated. And so there's differences. I mean, you, you can't really apply that trial now to future practice because there's already new technology that came out before the trial even got over, right? So, right. you know, there's always differences. There's really no way to to pinpoint a certain timeline for you know new technologies or new medications for you know, coming into the field. Um, it, yeah, it, it, it's very dependent on every single one. I, I I can't really give you a certain timeline for a, a general timeline for everything. Right. And how do they like? How do they decide to give it to a patient? Like how? how does that process work? Cause I mean, there's like always, especially in like in hospitals that are like associated with, you know, an academic center, there are always like, I guess, trials going on for different things. And how do they, um, I guess, locate the patients to do that and then get the, get that kind of approval from them? Because it is like, it's kind of scary, you know, sometimes doing like a new procedure that hasn't been done before, but also giving like, the patient like a sense of hope that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, I mean, then you you kind of get into like the whole consent process and you know like the risks and versus benefits and kind of presenting that to the patient. So if you're trying out a new medication, then you know it it goes through the whole IRB approval process and um, it, in a trial you you specify the consent process beforehand. It gets approved by the IRB, which is the Institutional Review Board, and so they review all the research protocols and. Um, you know, every single step that you're going to follow and, um, you know, they ensure the, the safety of the patient in the process. They ensure that you're not um, depriving the patient of a medication that, you know, may be potentially life-saving, um, you know, th- things like that. You know, you always want to make sure that, you know, the patient's uh, in, in, in focus whenever you're working on these trials. Um, and so you go through a consent process with the patient and, you tell them all the risks and the benefits of the the drug right. that you're using in the trial, you know, and and certain drugs may carry higher risks, certain drugs may not have any risk at all, um, and so you go through that with them, and and it's totally up to them um, whether they want to opt in or opt out, and um, it's you know, and they can um, withdraw their consent at any time during the trial process, and that's that's totally fine. There's no there's nothing saying that once you commit, that's it, um, you know. And then even after the trial has started and you're getting the medications or the procedure or the vaccine even, um, you know, if they have certain side effects or if they have um, 
questionable reactions to the medication than um, the the um, the physicians who are running the trial um, keep close follow up with the patients and are able to withdraw them from the trial and or switch them from the experimental drug to the, the non-experimental drug to the placebo group or whatever um, if that's necessary and so um, those things those processes are just always in place to keep the patient safety in mind right that's that's good and I think it, I mean, when you're presented with that thing, and especially like, I think we're kind of seeing it with the vaccines, like it's vaccine or nothing in, in a sense where you're like, if, if you don't get it, you know, you're going to have a risk of getting this really dangerous um, disease. And there are people that are faced with the decision like that intense on the daily with other conditions where they were like, this is the one thing that could work, yeah. but, you know, and there, there's not really an alternative to it. Yeah. And it's, and it's a difficult, um, you know, situation to be in. Like, um, there's, and, and a lot of times it's sort of unprecedented, even for us as providers, like we'll come across situations with patients that we've never encountered before. And, and we have to kind of use the, use the, you know, the knowledge we know from trial data or from other, you know, research studies that have been done and see if that, data can apply to the patient and to our situation that we're in. Um, like, I'll give you an example. I, we had a patient who um, came in with a heart attack and um, he actually came in and had a heart attack during the snowpocalypse in Texas when there was a big oh, no. shut down like a couple of weeks ago. So there was no way for him to get to a hospital in time to get a, a cath to get a stent put in. Um, and it was a true heart attack, right? So he uh, got a medication um, to break up a clot in his, um, potentially in his in the blood vessels of his heart. Um, that medication, a thrombolytic, is not typically used for heart attacks because it carries the high risk of bleeding. Um, but because there was no other choice, that's what he got. Um, and then eventually he was transferred over to our hospital from this outside hospital where he first came in. Um, and then at our hospital, we, he was having a headache and we found that he had a stroke. Um, and so he not only had a heart attack, but he also had a stroke. Um, and so now because he has a stroke and he has a high bleeding risk, we can't take him to the cath lab to um, go inside and look at his blood vessels because um, if we were to go in and find something that we would need to stent, then we would have to put him on medications to prevent clotting, which would increase the risk of bleeding. Oh my God. It's like conflicting. Like that's, it's just trying to balance the risks and benefits at all times. Right. Um, and this all sort of culminated in us saying, okay, we're not going to do a, a cath right now because the risk of bleeding in his brain is much worse and likely going to be fatal if that happens. So we want to avoid that as much as possible. And so we kept it off and then eventually he got a cath this week. Uh, and on that, he had a blood vessel that was completely blocked off. And so that's where that heart attack had happened. And so we think that that medication that he got, the thrombolytic to break up the clot, that didn't really work or do anything in the first place, um, which th there wasn't great data for it to begin with, but um, that's sort of the only choice we had at that moment. And so we used it and you know, lo and behold, we don't think it worked. 
Um, so we're not really surprised by what we found, but you know, it's kind of hit or miss with you know what is there and, and available. So those doctors initially, when you came in, kind of weighed that risk and benefit at that time, mm-hmm. and they were like, okay, well, this this thrombolytic has some data and shows that maybe it might work. And yes, there's increased risk, but if we don't do anything, he's at even more increased risk of dying from this heart attack. So they went ahead and did it. And so that's kind of like an everyday thing, maybe not in such extreme situations, but um, you know, that's always the the thought process that's playing out when we're when we're treating patients. So Right. You don't always have what's best. You have something that might be better, but not necessarily what's best. And that's interesting because that also gives you another I guess, data point, you know, as as well to use in the future, right? Like, so so you can use what happened in that case to then kind of extrapolate and and see like, is it going to be effective in say like another case that is similar to that? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you're always building sort of data points and, and training and residency and fellowship and that's essentially what it is right so you're there's different levels of evidence that you accumulate throughout your years of practice and um, whether it's trial data or retrospective research data or gestalt or uh, personal experience case reports or case series this is all just data that you collect and when you're deciding treatments for patients you use a combination of all of that to make a decision right and for you coming in, I know like I've talked to I've talked to the other residents and it's always seems like that first year, you know, you're coming in and it, it, how is that transition, by the way, like you are learning about medicine all these years and then the final test to, I guess, test your learning is to have you actually do the thing, like actually be someone's doctor. How yeah. is that transition for you? It's, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's weird at first because you, you're kind of taken aback by like everyone's calling you doctor. doctor you, yeah. Oh gosh. There's like so much responsibility on my shoulders and like, you're, you're trying to figure out like what dose of Tylenol to give, you know, that's the classic example, but you know, um, uh, you quickly learn that those little things really don't matter as much. And you can like pick those up and, and learn the dosing of medications and, and learn sort of what the next step in management is going to be um, very quickly. And then you kind of move from learning the basics of, of managing diseases to being at a point where you can anticipate the next step in management, anticipate, you know, what you predict is going to happen and what you predict the management of the next thing that's going to happen is going to be. And so you, when patients come in with a certain complaint, you build this schema about that complaint and you ask them questions to rule in and rule out things. You do tests to rule in and rule out things and you work through your differential diagnosis and eventually come up with the diagnosis that they have and then treat that. Um, yeah. Especially yeah. in the beginning, before you like, I guess, develop those schemas, do you have like any, I guess, memories of, of times of, of when you had that kind of difficulty in, in, in understanding a patient or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, there's always challenges. Um, and you, you kind of in medical school, you'll build these schemas for certain conditions, and then you get to residency and you, you realize that sometimes those things are not the most accurate. And maybe that's because of the way you learned it or because of um, the management having changed since you learned it. And, and those things are something that you, you keep in mind and you learn how to change you know, your practice for those 
those uh, disease processes. Um, I don't really have any specific examples I can think of right now for, for things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like it's, you know, a, a, a lifelong learning process. It's constantly changing. So um, right. yeah, and, and talking about that, that learning process, like for me right now, looking into the future of, of medicine and like four years of medical school, then residency, and like it feels so far away for you who is now, you know, in that residency period, looking back and yeah. kind of remembering how you felt in that time, it, how, how is it different? How is, um, sorry, you, before pre-med school days? Different? Yeah. Yeah. Like before then, and then like coming into now and like yeah. looking back on how you were then. I mean, you, I think, you know, before I was in med school, um, I, was a little, I, I did a lot of extracurricular activities in undergrad, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, um, I did a lot of stuff with music and uh, graphic designing and digital media production, things like that. And um, still involved in some of that. And, um, you know, I think some of that is necessary to stay sane. Um, but yeah, I, th I think you really develop time management skills, you develop um, sort of skills to prioritize your tasks and, um, you know, work on compartmentalizing your life. Essentially, you 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 learn how to do things in in medical school with studying for your board exams and your you know, all the exams for all your different blocks, and um, that process sort of prepares you for residency, um, where you really have to you like you you are responsible for your patients and you are responsible for making sure they get adequate care during the day, and um, you know you read up on things for them uh, in the evenings and and that sort of responsibility I think is what develops over time um, and that is, I think is the biggest change that I've noticed really is like really taking ownership of the patients and and feeling that responsibility to, to treat them um, and you know I, I never would have thought in in undergrad that I, I would be this way like kind of managing my time and really staying on top of patient care and and being responsible for their health and things like that. I mean, you know, obviously I, I understood that that's something that is needed for, for being a physician, but um, it's just the, the feeling of it is something that I, I never thought of or imagined before. And I think it's the biggest change I've noticed. Right. And in, in medicine, it's interesting too, that there's like, it's just a cycle, right? Like you, you as, or like for me, for example, as a pre-med, I have medical students that, you know, inspire me and that, you know, tell me what I can do better, what I can do and change and things like that. And then med students probably have their residents who like, you know, give them advice and things like that and, you know, guide, guide them through the process. And then one step past that is, you know, the attending for the resident. And it's, it's really interesting how it's like a step-by-step -step process where there's mentoring at every level of yeah. it. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I think that's the, that's a beautiful part of medicine is that you always have someone that you can go to and, and ask for help and guidance. Um, it's, it's, you, you should never feel alone in the process. It's always a, a team effort. Um, whether, like you said, whether it's med students helping med students or med students helping undergrad students or residents helping med students or right. helping residents, like, the, you know, there's always someone there. Um, and, you know, I think, when you're in residency and fellowship, that really comes out with like working with your team and working with not only other doctors, but other, you know, other um, healthcare providers, other um, you know, nursing staff and, and techs for various um, you know, fields and, 
and physical therapists and occupational therapists and so on and so forth. And so you really, you, you get immersed in that, that team effort. And I, and I think that is something that you kind of get introduced to in med school, but you really um, experience as a, as a resident. So. Right. And, and it's, it, have you, have you heard of the term FOMED, um, the free open act? The, so I saw a post on Instagram from, from someone recently about how social media is turning into FOMED. And it, it, what reminded me of that is the idea of mentorship, right? There's so many social media, I guess, um, presences online that have become mentors and become figures that people look up to, to potentially one day be in their position. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts regarding social media in terms of medicine? You know, there's, I think, an increase in people that are doctors or, you know, anyone in healthcare that are trying to also grow online and, and help people in that, that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think FOMED is great. I mean, I, I, um, will often get a lot of educational resources from Twitter and yeah. posting graphics that, that are very useful and just make sense. And um, being in the medical field, you're able to parse through that and really see kind of verified for yourself and, and see like what is applicable to my practice and, and use it to teach the med students I'm working with on a daily basis. So there's like a, a graphic about pressors or vasopressors that, you know, I found the other day and I shared it with, you know, med students who are on the ICU right now. And it's something that they can just pull up on their phone if they want a reminder for what vasopressors are great for this patient, for example. So, um, you know, things like that are just little quick tidbits that we can use to help augment our education. Um, you know, I think it's, it's something that, um, help supplement medical education. And you know, I don't think it's going to be something that replaces it. Um, you know, obviously you have to have a full structured curriculum and kind of make sure you cover all aspects of it, um, of what's going on in, in that field. And um, it, overall, I think you, you, there's great resources out there, but there's not a, a great all encompassing, you know, medical education curriculum necessarily. Um, so I, I would, you know, my thoughts are that it's a great supplement to yeah. education. Yeah, for sure. And it's also for people that might not necessarily be in the path of getting, you know, a formal degree in that particular field, right? And so I think that's a really interesting part too, where it's like creating a greater general understanding of topics for people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's a good point. There's like two aspects of it, right? There's a the aspect where the audience is, providers and people in the medical mm -hmm. field and then there's the other audience which is people who are not in the medical field who are just interested in the topic and learning more about it um and so you know i think it's great for both sides of it um you know obviously for people who are not in the medical field i would you know, definitely caution to take things with a grain of salt really verify the resources and um, verify the people that it's coming from just to make sure that you're getting accurate information um but yeah i i think it's great yeah, I, I definitely agree. And it, it, there's, it's crazy to see, especially like own, like running this podcast, I, I have to do like a lot of research looking up people and things like that. It's really interesting to see just how much information is actually out there, right? And how much of it is not going to the people it needs to go to. I, I feel like that is such like, it's, I guess it's an inherent problem of it. Like you can't, you can't reach 
everyone and it's difficult to do so as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, there's information overload just all over yeah. social media, all over the internet, you know, um, and that, that comes back to, you know, making sure that you know where to get accurate information and, um, you know, verifying your sources and, and kind of having one spot where you get everything and, or, or multiple you know, spots yeah. where you get information. Have you had to, have you had to deal with I guess patients who have like misinformed sources and and like asking you questions about things that aren't aren't necessarily true but are like kind of myths or rumors about things? Yeah, yeah. That I mean, I, I think every single doctor at some point <laughs> in their career has encountered that. Um, and you know, that's to no fault of the patients. They're just interested in learning uh, more about whatever treatment they're going through or, or whatever their doctors are talking about. And um, I think as physicians, our responsibility in that situation is just to build a relationship with that patient and um, work on um, you know, making sure that they have the correct information. Um, and, you know, obviously being respectful for towards their opinions and, you know, not um, really, you know, going against or disrespecting sort of their beliefs or their cultures in any way, but um, kind of making sure that objectively they have the correct scientific information and knowledge um, that's coming from a reputable source um, and offering up any help if they you know, have questions and, and kind of being that open, um, open source of information for them. Um, I've had patients, and this is pretty common with vaccines, and now with the COVID vaccine, you know, I've had several patients in my clinic who have asked about that, and um, they, there's a lot of conspiracies and and sort of un, untrue beliefs about the effects of the vaccine that have circulated, and they'll bring that information to me. Um, and, you know, I, first of all, I'm, I'm really happy that they trust to bring that information to me and ask me about that. and. Um, trust that or I'm happy that they trust my information that I'm going to give to them. Um, so that's, that's a great part of the relationship as well. Um, and, and the next step beyond that is kind of talking it through with them and, and providing them the correct information. And if you don't know yourself as a, as a doctor saying that, you know, that's a great point, I'm going to go read about it. And once I know more, I'll come back and talk to you and things like that. And, um, you know, just making sure that they have the accurate information is, is pretty much all that's needed. Right. Yeah. And I guess that's, it's, 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 I said this recently, I don't know, on this, to someone it's like being a doctor is you're, you're being a teacher in a way, right? You're, you're teaching someone how to take care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a really great way to put it. Actually. I, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I find that interesting. And also you, I, before we close, I just, I want to talk about the, <laughs> the video that you made forever ago and <laughs> I don't even know how I found it like it, to everyone listening um about like two days after or one or two days after I uh dm Dr. Agrawal I was just scrolling through YouTube mindlessly and watching videos and I came upon this video about um it was like the, the the people people in med school and there's this term called gunner which is basically the term given to people who uh, go hard on everything you know they, they're always trying to get the highest score on everything and trying to uh, do the most that they can and uh, Dr. Agarwal and some some of his class made a parody um, 
of that persona and it was hilarious and, and I found that and then I just I saw him filming part of it and I, like I saw a familiar face I was like that that guy looks familiar and then and then I looked at the description I was like that that is that is the person I'm about to be talking to soon um but it, that video kind of it's highlighting this this culture I guess this this gunner culture that it, of course it was it was dramatized a little bit but uh, um i still think that there is a hint of truth to that and it's it's interesting also to see where medicine is going from that i, I mean just before before i keep trailing on did you feel kind of a that, that gunner I, I mean sure your video is probably inspired by certain members of your class potentially <laughs> um but talk talk to me about the inspiration about that well, I mean, it's always, you know, it's a, like you said, just like a, a sort of a culture that has come up in, in medical school training and, um, you know, in, it, it's just sort of speaks to students who are medical students who sort of not only go above and beyond, but um, essentially put their other classmates down in order to get ahead. Um, and that sort of culture is looked down upon because medicine and and you know being a physician is all about teamwork and kind of helping each other out yeah. and and that's something that's important um you know throughout the field so um but you know, the the side of it that i guess you're referring to that has a little bit of truth in it is that you know we do go above and beyond to learn medicine to learn the field to learn all the different processes that happen in the body and all the uh, you know the medications that are involved in treating conditions all the the surgical techniques etc um, you know, we, we spend countless hours doing all that training and, and it's all because we care about treating patients and care about helping people um, get better from their illnesses. So, um, you know, I think that that's the part that you might be referring to for yeah. truth, but um, yeah, and that was kind of in the video too. And, and it, it's something that actually we, during the writing process, you know, we, me and two other medical student friends were just, you know, staying up late trying to figure out how to, you know, work through the dialogue and, and, you know, write that, the story in the video. And, um, you know, in that process, we sort of realized that in that inkling of truth, you know, it's all, it's all going above and beyond for the patients in the end. That, that is deep. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> going above and beyond for the patients. Um, I, I, I really like that. And it's, you recently has, have seen, like we've seen the med school, I guess, process change a lot, right? Like the, the, the way things are being done, like the, the big step one exam, that's like your accumulation of all your basics, basic, um, medical knowledge is, has now like turned from a, a scaled score to be pass fail in the attempts to address these rates of like, you know, depression rates of, of suicide um, and, and terrible things like that. Um, do you have any, I guess, experiences or, or, or thoughts on these changes that are being made in regards to things like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, personally, I think it's a, a positive change. I, I know, you know, uh, that step one exam is, has been a, a very, um, for a lot of people, it's something that has brought on a lot of stress and anxiety and, um, you know, has led to you know, several effects to their mental health. And that's something that really shouldn't happen in medical school. Um, and furthermore, you know, I, I think from, a, from a, a, a very simplistic standpoint, I think step two, um, the second part of the license exam is way more applicable to clinical practice and, and something that 
is um, way more useful for judging sort of how people or how medical students um, are understanding clinical knowledge, which is something they're actually going to be using um, in their practice in the future. Um, you know, having that understanding of basic sciences is obviously important, um, but you know, I think the the scaled score and switching over to pass fail, um, I, I think, is a good move. Right. Cool. Um, and you know, I don't want to keep you too long, but last question, um, because this is med spec, is when we love talking about stories. What is a story from your practice that you hold dear to you, and one of the memories that you, I guess value a lot and treasure to this to this day um so i had a patient with really bad heart failure this was during my intern year um and he had sort of end stage heart failure to a point where his heart just was not even beating anymore it was not able to push out blood um for anyone listening, if they know what an ejection fraction is, his was literally 0% on an echo. Um, so there was absolutely no blood moving out of the heart at all, right? How um, does he get to that point? It, it's just you know, over time when when you have heart failure, if you're not on the right medications and, and you're not really giving it room to heal, if you have multiple heart attacks, um, things like that, it's enough of your heart muscle um, essentially dies and, and loses its pump function, then it's not able to squeeze and pump the blood out. Um, and so this guy was near the end of his life. And, um, you know, I actually was with him for the last few minutes that he was alive and, and, and stayed in the room and declared him dead and everything. But um, he had some family members who flew in um, who were estranged siblings that he hadn't seen for 40, 50 years, um, or even talked to for, for that long. And they flew in and, you know, it, it, they were there for the last few moments of his life. And I was there with all of them. And I think that moment is something that I would just always keep in mind with me. Um, just because of sort of the, the relationship of the siblings that, you know, I saw come through during those last moments where, they were all sort of talking and laughing and sort of reminiscing about their childhood and, um, you know, and they're kind of involving me in the conversation as well. And, you know, I, I think it was a very positive experience in a negative situation. And so that sort of contrast is something that I always keep with me. Right. And then it's that, that concept of like, of, of death, right? Like it's, a very sad occurrence but at the same time at, at a there's a part of it that's like it's finally you know being free in, in a way and being in that situation that you talked about where like his family was able to be with him it's like it's like the best it was a good way to see that end yeah yeah no i, I was so happy that he had that opportunity to actually talk with his family um before he passed and um, you know, I'm really happy that his family was able to make it and, and that experience was positive for everyone involved. Um, so and, you know, in, in the future, that what I'm going to take away is that in the future, I always want to be able to give that opportunity to patients if they're at a point where they're near the end of the life. Um, you know, I think that's a very important aspect of, of that process. Right. I completely agree. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Agarwal. Thank you for your time today. Um, I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Of course. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Um, and, you know, definitely, definitely love talking to you again. Um, but yeah, again, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitspectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next Monday.